It's always a privilege to be able to uh, proclaim the gospel in this fashion through preaching. And uh, we're going to talk about <clears throat> Christ's humanity, his incarnation. I've been doing a study the last couple of months on his ascension, and it has dovetailed nicely into the incarnation. So we're going we're to look at that this morning as we prepare to celebrate for Christ coming to earth, flesh of our flesh and bone of our bones. Uh, if you read with me, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 1 to 4, and verse 14. Would you read with me this next uh, passage from Acts chapter 7, verse 55? But filled with the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Can we say that line one more time? I see the heavens opened. I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Just before he was stoned to death and became the first Christian martyr, Stephen had a vision of the ascended Christ. I see the Son of Man standing at God's right hand, he exclaimed as he was being stoned to death. Commonly used as a title for Jesus in the gospel, this is the only other place in the New Testament where Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. And traditionally, going all the way back to the early church fathers, it has been understood as a title that emphasizes Jesus' full humanity. Jesus is both the Son of God, means he's fully divine, and the Son of Man, fully human. And this reference to the real humanity of our Lord contains an essential truth I'd like for us to focus on this morning. Because of Jesus' incarnation, he became flesh, uh, and his ascension, humanity has been exalted and brought into the life of God. Peter Toon uh, sums it up like this. He says, for now, there is in heaven the very life of God himself, a glorified humanity belonging to the eternal son and a humanity of the same essence as shared by the whole human race. And so in and through him, we can draw near to God because of Jesus' incarnation, because of his ascension, because as a son of man, he's at the right hand of the father, we can draw near to God. That's great news, isn't it? We don't have to wonder who God is or what he's about. He has given us permission through Christ to draw near to him and what a privilege that is. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he brought our humanity with him. A.W. Tozer explained it this way in his sermon, Jesus took our human nature into the Godhead and their human nature was received, embraced, welcomed and enthroned at the right hand of the Father. In the miracle of the incarnation, Jesus became flesh of our flesh. Bone of our bone. We sing during Advent and Christmas, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, held incarnate deity, 
Pleases man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, hark the herald angels sing. What about after his death? What about after his resurrection? Was his human flesh like loose fitting clothing that he put on, but now he takes off as he returns to heaven? He doesn't any longer need it or or want it. What Stephen saw, I believe, gives us the answer. The fact that the Son of Man is at God's right hand means that the perfect union with humanity, which had begun in the incarnation, continues in heaven and throughout eternity. Charles Wesley expressed it in another one of his ascension hymns. Though returning to his throne, still he calls mankind his own. He calls us his own. (laughs) We're his beloved children. Theologian uh, Carl Barth says it like this, Christ the Son maintains our humanity to all eternity. Now, you ever thought about that before? The reason I started studying this, I do an online Bible study every couple of weeks with a group of folks and they asked me the question about Christ's humanity. Is he gonna be that way for eternity? It is clothing which he does not put off. It is his temple which he does not leave. It is the form which he does not lose. To be sure, now Christ is in heaven as a spiritual man with a glorified body. Nevertheless, it's a body, but unlike our present human bodies, it is no longer subject to corruption and decay. The fact that Christ has a glorified body doesn't mean he has less body, but more truly and completely body. For his physical existence has been redeemed from all that would destroy it. Remember, when the resurrected Christ appeared to Thomas the doubter. Touch me, he said to Thomas. Touch the scars in my hand, the wounds in my side. Jesus' glorified body had substance. Remember when the resurrected Christ returned to restore Peter at the seashore? He fixed breakfast over the same kind of charcoal fire around which Peter had denied him. The only two places in scripture that that kind of fire is mentioned at the denial and when Jesus restores him. You love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Lick your wounds, get over it. Get on about my business. You're my child. In his glorified body, they gathered together to have breakfast. In his heavenly existence, he remains truly human. He doesn't slough off his humanity, but fully retains it. The ascension is the other end of the incarnation. It means that we who are joined with Christ are now able to enter into the life of God. There is a son of man at God's right hand, says Stephen while he's being stoned. The dust of the earth has been lifted to the throne of heaven. The ascension of Jesus is the foretaste and guarantee of our ascension to our originally designated royal status that the psalmist talks about in Psalm 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Psalmist slide there. Would you read that with me? And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, Adam, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Christopher Wadsworth, a hymn writer, expressed it beautifully in a hymn. Thou hast raised our human nature on the clouds to God's right hand. There we sit in heavenly places. There with thee in glory stand. Jesus reigns adored by angels. Man with God is on the throne. Mighty Lord in thine ascension, we by faith behold our own. 
The ascension then reveals the high regard God has for humanity. And as we turn to the practical implications of this important truth, we begin by acknowledging that the heretical teachings of the, of the Gnostics in Paul's day is still influencing Christians today. It's influencing Christians to embrace a world where the material is set over against the spiritual, where the body is portrayed as the enemy of the spirit and the human is viewed as an obstacle to the divine. I got news this morning. These bodies are amoral. They're neither righteous nor sinful. They can be used as instruments of righteousness or instruments of unrighteousness. To be sure, we know that humanity has fallen and the image of God is is deeply marred as a result of sin. Scripture states that the unredeemed flesh is hostile to God in Galatians 5.17 and must be put to death in us. But by sending his own son in a body like we have and by dwelling among us in human form and taking our humanity to heaven, God has forever redeemed and hallowed our mortal bodies. Would you read the next scriptures with me from Romans 8? The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what the sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the spirit, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. In Romans 8, verse 3. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. But God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Through the incarnation and ascension, we learn that the spirit does not despise matter. For not only did God create the material world, remember Genesis, he called it good. And when God calls something good, that means it's good, folks. After the first day, he said, this is good. Second day, it is good. Third day, it is good. Fourth, good. Fifth, good. Sixth, good. He said, very good when he created Adam and Eve. The final verdict has been declared. God not only created the material world and called it good, but then when it became corrupted through humanity's sin, God assumed matter. He entered the stream of time and matter and space. God assumed matter by sending his own son in a human body and ascending with a glorified human body. The final verdict has been declared. God intends to redeem our bodies, the material side of our existence, as well as our souls and spirits. Every time Christians around the world affirm with the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body, we are in effect declaring that. The trump of God shall sound, the dead in Christ shall rise, and we're going to have a party. (laughs) True Christian spirituality celebrates the material dimensions of creaturely existence. The fact God has assumed and exalted humanity in the incarnation and ascension calls us to work for the protection, the advancement, the celebration of all that is truly human in the world and to stand 
and fight against all that is inhumane. So if God esteems our humanity so highly, how can we insist on despising it? Yet how often in our own personal lives, that's exactly what we do. For the past few decades, Stephen Siemens has been engaged in spiritual counsel with seminary students, especially in the ministry of healing prayer. And he's come to realize how deeply rooted self-rejection is in so many of us. Also in his book, In the Life of the Beloved by Henry Nouwen, he insisted that self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the truth that we are the beloved of God. We are loved by God. Over the years, as Prof. Siemens has sought to help people experience more deeply their belovedness in Christ, he has bumped up against hindrances rooted in, in the unwillingness to accept and embrace themselves as their, and their humanity. Our inability to accept ourselves is only really, I think, one of the three main barriers to our spiritual and our emotional wholeness in Christ. The other two are the inability to receive God's forgiveness and the inability to forgive others, but that's not worth what we're going to focus on this morning. I don't have time to develop all of those. I'm focusing this morning on that proper self-acceptance. Romano Gardini, a a philosopher and theologian, says this, the act of self-acceptance is the root of all things. I must agree to be the person who I am. Agree to have the qualifications which I have. Agree to live within the limitations set for me. The clarity and the courageousness of this acceptance is the foundation of all existence. There is a fallen sinful self which scripture demands us and commands us to deny in Mark 8, 34 and to put to death according to Romans 6, 6 and Ephesians 4. But there's also that new self, our authentic human self, which is a beloved of God and is to be accepted and nourished. Ephesians 4, let's say it together. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. However, if we're so busy hating the soul that God loves and that is in the process of straightening out, in the process of sanctifying, in the process of making more like Jesus, we can't help others. Our minds are going to be riveted and preoccupied on ourselves, not on Christ, who is our wholeness, the true self, whom God loves and we too much, and that we also, God loves and we too must accept and love is a finite, we're finite. We're an embodied human self with limitations. We have boundaries, qualifications, weaknesses, inadequacies. This self, however, is often the very self that we despise and reject. Tim, who's a seasoned pastor, expressed it like this. He said, I've always seen myself as slightly less than, like the sixth man on the basketball team or the second fiddle in the orchestra. So I didn't like myself and believed there was something wrong with me. But is there anything inherently wrong with being sixth man or playing second fiddle? Aren't they good and necessary parts that contribute to the well-being of the team or the orchestra? Because I could never believe that about that particular part I was destined to play. 
I have struggled to embrace the completely unique and gifted person God has created me to be. I've rejected and hated myself because of my limitations and because I wasn't someone else. Do you have human limitations? Of course you do. We all do. Physical, intellectual, emotional, familial, family, social, racial, cultural. Any of those things you've been ashamed of or despised? A couple people came to mind as I was composing this sermon. First was Kelly. She was abused, sexually abused as an older child and into her early adolescence. It was a long, it wasn't easy. It was a long road to recovery and wholeness. But I remember the day in my office when she, she understood who she was in Christ. She felt undesirable. She felt all used up. She felt like a second-class citizen. But then she embraced the fact that she was a beloved daughter of the Most High God who created her and things turned around. She saw herself as God saw her, a beloved daughter of God. Then God brought a man into her life that loved her. She has a family. And she saw herself as God saw her. A friend of mine, his uh, mom would come to church occasionally when they visited. And I, always, I made the comment to one, him one day, your mom seems, her countenance just expresses peace and joy. And he shared a story with me. She goes, yep, she's an amazing woman. When my sibling and I were children, a man came by the house, broke in, threw us in the closet, and then raped my mother under knife point. He said, to make a long story short, here's her, her positive attitude. Here's, here's the crux of it. She said, you know, I'm a beloved daughter of God. My body is his body. He just didn't do it to me. He did it to the Lord. And she continued to see herself for who she was, a beloved daughter of God with intrinsic worth and value and didn't allow the circumstances of life to ruin how she saw herself and who she truly was. Stephen Siemens testifies, he'll never forget praying with a student we'll call Chloe. She was ashamed of and despised her gender. When she was a child, it had often been the cause of ridicule and hurt in her life. And her word says, my father was stern. He would scold me and humiliate me for crying so much. Girls are too sensitive, he would chide. Quit crying, get control of yourself. There were also several boys at school who bullied me constantly. Compared to them, I was so small. There was no way I could defend myself. And then... When I would burst into tears, they would tease and torment me all the more. It was all because I was a girl and so small and so weak and overly emotional. If I had been a boy, I could have handled it and wouldn't have been so hurt. I grew up despising those things about myself and was determined to suppress my emotional side. I vowed that I would never appear weak and I would never let myself feel or express my emotions. I hated those things about myself it was mad at God for making me that way. Chloe was a very intelligent, straight-A student. She became an expert of living out of her head and suppressing her emotions. 
That was how she maintained control and kept herself from getting hurt. But her self-protective strategy also prevented her from forming close relationships and experiencing deep emotions. One day, Prof. Siemens and his prayer partner witnessed a wonderful time of transformation and healing in Chloe's life. As she prayed, she renounced the vow she had made and repented of and repented for calling unclean those things about herself, her redeemed self, her redeemed self, which God had called clean. Then she chose to embrace the person she had been to created to be, a woman with great gifts and strengths, but also a woman with limitations and weaknesses that made her susceptible to pain and suffering. In the days ahead, says Prosimon, something shifted in Chloe. She began to connect with parts of herself from which she had cut herself off. Hard and cold places in her heart softened and melted before their eyes. There was richer color in her face, a deeper joy in her eyes. The Lord was surely in their midst and they could only praise and thank God for what he was doing for his beloved daughter. The son of God is at God's right hand. The son of man is at God's right hand. Belief in the incarnation and the ascension rightly understood, I believe, is a foundation for accepting and embracing our humanity with all of its qualifications, with all of its imperfections, with all of its limitations. How can we despise the unique redeemed person that God so prizes? The doctrine of incarnation and ascension can show us the way to a proper self-love and a proper self-acceptance. The incarnation and ascension, however, confront human pride. It calls us to humility. It's the son of man at God's right hand. Even though our humanity has been exalted to share in God's life and glory, we always remain human. That boundary line between divinity and humanity will never be blurred or erased. Christ's glorified humanity does not dissolve in an ocean of divinity, nor will we ever merge with divinity. Christ's ascension exalts humanity, but it also keeps humanity in its rightful place. Contrary to the serpent's lie in the garden, we are not divine, nor will we ever become divine. We are and always will be human. So we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of of man. According to John, Christ's ascension begins with being lifted up by his death. His exaltation begins with his humility, his humiliation. His exaltation from humiliation to glory happens through the cross. The world has never seen a God like this. And it never will again. <laughs> he comes to our level, becomes one of us so he can lift us up. To heavenly places. He shares in our humanity that we can share in his divinity. Our exaltation to the true human we were created and intended to be is also through the cross. Amen? One of my life verses, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself 
for me. Uh, part of my devotional life, I take advantage of J.D. Walt's daily scripture readings and devotionals. And a couple of weeks ago, November 15th, he, uh, he got into Psalm 139, a scripture reading, and he, he told a story about him being the groundskeeper of a 40-acre tract of land that Asbury Seminary uh, inherited, and it became the president's manse. Psalm 139, how amazing are your thoughts concerning me, God? How vast is the sum of them? Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. You know how much sand is on this earth? At one time, the land had been a magnificent show place with intricately groomed gardens and walkways, something like a Biltmore mansion, except on a smaller scale. And J.D. said, three things came to my mind when I walked there properly. First of all, long, long ago, this place had been intricately designed and created and cared for fearfully and wonderfully made. Second, the exquisite design of the original architect and creator was unrecognizable in the now decimated state of the farm. Thirdly, he said, it would be my job to reclaim and restore this land and it would take years. What a grand and glorious work it would be. He says, this is a farming operation at the level of soul, a garden spot created by God, lost in the fall, now rediscovered, reclaimed, and under restoration. I hated that place for all it had become. And the awful toil it required of me, I loved that place for all I had once been and for the possibility of what would become again. Do you love yourself for the possibility of what you can become again? what God intended you to be, what God created you to be, what God purposed you to be. But yet we settle for so much less, don't we? We go our own paths. We let the unredeemed self become ugly, burdened by sin. We let it wreck our lives. Like that garden, such it is with our relationship with ourselves. We don't love the broken, overgrown, sinful, self-centered people we've become we must love the person God created and still intentions us to be. This is the dilemma of the garden that is our inmost being. He goes on and talks a little more how he always gets pushback when it comes to, he talks about loving oneself. He says, this is not the self-love of an amateur narcissist. This is what it looks like when a person loves God and at the core of their God-crafted inmost being and thereby learns to appropriately love themselves. Look how the psalmist handles this dilemma as you wrap up here today. For you created my inmost being, says the psalmist. And again, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Then he breaks into worship. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He's just getting started. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. The psalmist is coming to grips with the deep glory of his truest and deepest and most God-intentioned self. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. It seems like the psalmist just can't stop. How amazing are your thoughts concerning me? How vast is the sum of them? Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. This is the beginning of affection. It's a surprising shift from God loves me because he has to love me. 
to God likes me. The real me, he created me to be. And if God likes the real me, maybe I can come to like the real me too. Your brokenness may run deep. And we're all broken in some fashion, some degree, some level. Maybe your brokenness runs deeper than mine, but your brokenness may run deep, but the truth of who you most truly are runs far deeper. That held me through all my teenage years, those tumultuous years. Who am I? I am a child. I am a son of God. That's my identity. That's who I am. There's a lot to love there and even more to like as a beloved child of God. I don't know who all this is for. Maybe it's for all of us. But as I prayed during the sermon, God impressed. This is for somebody special. God wants to do healing in your life. He wants you to quit focusing on the broken person you've become because of your rebellion against him and surrender yourself to him so that he can make you into what he intended and created and purposed you to be. Would you start on that path this morning? Do you see yourself as a beloved child of God? Are there areas in your life that needs healing? Are there areas in your life that you need to accept? And to surrender to God as God is in the process of straightening it out, of sanctifying you, of making you more like Jesus, of making you into your best self? Are you trying to be somebody else instead of being comfortable in your own skin? Are you trying to live up to others' unrealistic expectations and goals for your redeemed self? Because that's not what, who or what you're intended to be. Do you sense the affection of God? you. Do you believe God likes you? Would you surrender yourself? Would you ask for his healing touch? Would you dare to become what God intended and created you to be? Were you satisfied with wallowing in your brokenness, making a mess of life because of poor choices, because you haven't seen yourself as a beloved son or daughter of God? 